This is Damon Albarn, and you're listening to Hallelujah Monkeys, the number one gorillas podcast in the world. Hello and welcome to Hallelujah Monkeys for the end of November. My name is Dylan Flynn. My name is Trevor Grath. Dylan, we're back here to talk about what gorillas? No, that band that's 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 dead and gone. That's old news, Trevor. Who cares about gorillas? No, let go of the past. Kill it if you have to. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We're we're making sort of a a, a Grexit. We're making sort of an exit <laughs> from gorillas. I like it. And officially shifting gears over to the good, the bad, and the queen. And since since we're truly in the upside down, there's going to be some, you know, weird format irregularities this week on the show, Trevor. Right, because because we thought, you know, Gorillaz is dead, so fuck it. Why, why, why even bother doing the news? Yeah, instead, let's talk about the new listener poll. Yeah, th- these are always fun. I've been looking forward to introducing this for a while now. Yeah, we did this back in uh, in phase or in phase two in season two of this uh, show, and it was one of my favorite episodes ever. Where we right had you guys. phase phase four was kind of wrapping up. We were we had just finished reviewing all the stuff, all of the stuff, all and of the stuff. It was time to take stock and decide, you know, what was our favorite from among that stuff. And not only did we figure that out, but we also asked you, the listeners, to. You know, chime in, make your voices heard, and tell us what your favorites were, too. Exactly. And there have been a lot of listeners reaching out saying, you guys got to do it again, but this time, you know, include the Now Now material in there. And we were thinking, that's interesting. That's not a bad idea. But I think we've come up with a slightly more interesting approach, Trevor. Right, because why why go two-thirds of the way when we could go, you know, we could 100% this bad boy and just cover this entire, you know, fruitful period of... Damon Auburn's career, which uh, I believe we have uh, come together to coin the Albarnissance. Yes, canonically, this has been the Albarnissance. The creative run from 2017's Humans to 2018's Maryland, including the Now Now. What we've decided to do is you're going to write in if you want to be involved. Me? Well, I mean, Trevor, you don't have to. I know <laughs> you'll be here with me. Okay. You're going to write into the to the show, hallelujahmonkeys at gmail.com, and what you're going to do is you're going to rank your 10 favorite songs of the Albarnassons. Now, let's go ahead and, and, and be specific on what this covers. This covers humans. This covers Sleeping Powder. This covers the the uh, the super deluxe humans tracks. Of course, it also covers the deluxe, the regular deluxe bonus tracks of humans. It covers uh, the now now, and then of course it covers the record that we're going to be reviewing today, Maryland, by the Good, the Bad, and the Queen. Dylan, I almost want to say fuck it and say that 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 blue song that you were so fond of is eligible too. Oh, why not? I loved it. <laughs> If Damon, if, if Damon was on it in the last two years or so, feel feel free to write it in, guys. It counts. It counts. And so, so then, what you're going to do is you're going to rank your your ten favorite songs of this period, you know, from from least most favorite to most most favorite. Mm-hmm. And then I want you to I want you to rank the records. Now I have an idea of what I think the listeners will rank the records, but. <laughs> 
But nevertheless, I still want you to do it. And then what we're going to do, it's not going to be right away, by the way. You guys are going to have a few weeks to do this and to let your opinions about this most recent batch of material settle. So don't feel like, oh, God, I got to figure it out right now. Uh, no. In a couple episodes down the way, we're going we're gonna to announce the, the results of the Albarnassance poll. We'll lay all the cards on the table. Including our own. We'll also give our personal top tens and our personal uh, 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 album rankings. And, and I think it should be a lot of fun. So yeah, hallelujahmonkeys at gmail.com. Just, you know, include something like the word poll in the subject uh, line. I'm tempted to say include Albarnassance just because I want to see all the creative ways people <laughs> come up with to spell it. <laughs> I will not count your vote if you misspell Albarnason. <laughs> so that should be really cool. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, Trevor, did you know that this is a fucking crazy episode? <laughs> yeah, because because do you want to do you want to talk about who we've got on the show later? Yeah, let's do it. I, I I mentioned we're in the upside down. Normally, this would be the point in the show if we had an interview where the interview would happen. But again, we, we've shaken the snow globe up a little bit here. A little bit because we are going to be talking to somebody. Somebody quite notable later on in the program, but before that, we thought to to give that con- that interview context, we would go through the record that we're going to be talking to him about. I think for this interview especially, it makes a lot of sense. Totally. That's a great interview that we had with, by the way, the good, the bad, and the queen, and formerly Gorillaz guitarist, Simon Tong. He was in the Verve too, for a second. Of course, he was in the Verve, you know, when the Verve was good. Yeah. That is a really fun interview that you're going to want to stick around for. Um, but to, again, like you said, Trevor, to kind of like set it up properly, I think I think first we need to... We need to pay a visit to Maryland. Yeah, let's, uh, let's, let's check in our friends over the pond. And especially from every Shari's end of England, the holy blissful martyr for to seek, that them had helpen when that they were weak. Boy, Trevor, I, 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 I just been so excited to talk about this record with you. Even putting aside how every everything I feel about the album, I'm just excited to be sitting down to talk to you about a second Good, the Bad, and the Queen record. When we recorded our first uh, Good, the Bad, and the Queen episode about a year ago, I could barely even picture this. Oh yeah, of course. We were still talking about it then, like one of those things Damon says in interviews that you just yeah that might happen someday. But no, here we have it: ten new songs from Damon Auburn, Simon Tong, Paul Simonin, and Tony Allen. And I uh, just uh, okay uh, disclaimer: I kind of fell down a rabbit hole in the research phase of this record. I, I got really emotionally invested in understanding kind of the cultural and the historical and the political context of the record. And Right, because as Damon has said over and over and over again, it's been the big narrative thrust throughout this entire interview cycle surrounding this album. This is his take on Brexit. And it is, but it's a lot more than that too. Yeah. It is what it says on the tin, but then there's a whole lot more happening inside. There is going to be some civics lessons in this uh, episode, but I've really tried my best to really pare it down and really parse it for kind of, you know, minimum homeworkiness. And I, because I really want people to like this episode, Trevor, and I really want people to treat this album like what it is, which in my opinion is a major work. I think this is a Absolutely. major work. I, t- I totally agree. I mean, we've heard from Damon himself saying, th- he, he said, this is the best album of my career. This is the most important record I've ever done. And we've even seen that sentiment 
uh, echoed in some of the early reviews of the album, like uh, GQ's album called it Damon's Best Record. And I'll talk about it throughout the episode, but I, after spending some time on this record, yeah, I totally understand that perspective. This feels like a landmark moment in the guy's career. First and foremost, in my opinion, this represents an enormous leap forward for Damon as a as a writer. I think that he's taken on the mantle of the great British socio-analytical poets, and there are pieces on this record that I can say, like, with a straight face, will stand alongside that lineage. People like, you know, Yates and Auden and Beckett, like, he's really you know, grown into this role. I, I want to talk about that in depth later when we get to a certain song. But yeah, I completely agree. And it feels earned in a way that really makes me almost proud as a fan of the guys. It Like proud and like, holy shit, like this is my buddy. Like look what happened. <laughs> yeah, but he's out there doing it. And this, it, just, it's, it feels like this is what his entire career has been building up to in a way. I see Maryland as a, as a near total improvement over the first Good Bad Queen record. And Yeah, I mean, we exchanged a couple words about this uh, record uh, before this, uh, before our interview with Simon. And, um, I think you said like the only argument you maybe could make for the first record over the second one was from a nostalgic point of view. And I was a little coming down on both sides uh, the first couple times I heard this. But yeah, this is, oh boy, it's a, it is a step up. I think the most succinct way I could put it is that I really love both of those albums, but I love this band. I think that this band has grown into itself and its sound and this is an exciting record, and this is a record that takes risks. Yeah, let's let's go ahead and oh, and also before before we do the uh, the Gorillatives, I do want to do a tip of the hat to Tony Visconti who produced this record. He, you know, the most important job he did on Maryland was kind of like the same job that, that like the canonizers had when they were creating the Holy Bible. Like they had to take a look at all these codexes and and these scraps of parchment and, and these oral traditions. And, and, and that's what he did. He took a giant pile of Damon Albarn material and he just kind of figured out how to carve an album out of it. And the fact that he arrived at a 37 minute long, 10 song record, I think is bold and confident and proves that they definitely hired the right man from the job who is not afraid to cut things to make the best possible record. Absolutely. And listening to this album, it sounds like the production work of a guy who has had his hands on like by now countless classic rock records legendary like, records they, they nailed it they just really nailed it putting together like an album that really feels like it can stand the test of time and like it's learned lessons from the greats of the past absolutely i think that's all i need to say before we get into our relatives do you want to go first sure i'll go first uh <clears throat> feel pretty good about mine my first one is fretful like, um, similar to, like, uh, Demon Days, there's a real anxious energy to this record. It's not even, like, a personal anxiety. It's almost like you're bearing witness to something very scary that's about to happen. Like, Definitely. Like, you're about to watch somebody carrying, like, gallons of nitroglycerin trying to walk across hot coals barefoot. Like, ooh, this is, it's, it's not going to end well. It's just not going to end well. And, and the fact that it stays in that kind of observational journalistic place and then every now and then explodes into like personal editorial angst, like only makes those moments stand out even more, I think, you know? That sets up my next one pretty well too. It's uh, Disappointed. Definitely. And there's a <laughs> profound sense of disappointment yeah. on this. Like, Yeah, definitely. 
like, wow, has it really come to this? I can't believe it. I don't even know if I recognize this place that I used to love so much anymore. Like there's a remorse and just, yeah, disappointment. And then my third, uh, my third adjective is lonely. I think oh, great. Uh, yeah. Damon spends a lot of his time on this album alone uh, in moments of solitary reflection. And a lot of these songs have to deal with uh, leaving and being left. Absolutely. There's a real sense of solitude here. It's almost in some kind of like roundabout way, a breakup album. It so is too, right? And and not unlike the way the Now Now was kind of a breakup album about a career. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is the, this is a similar thing, like a breakup album about a nation or an era. You know, Damon's made two or three kind of end of the world records. This definitely feels like 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 the end of an idea or the end of a of a you know I say era, but we're talking about thousands of years. That's kind of like coming to its death on this record. <laughs> that's maybe my favorite thing about it: the palpable sense of dread on the album. It's 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 dripping with it for sure. It's Im- it's impending and it just shadows over every second of it. Love love those knocked it out of the park. Um, let's see how I did. Okay, so my first relative is uh, uh, xenophilic. Okay, the opposite of xenophobic. The the sound you know obviously there's a multiculturalism in the in the lyrics and an expression of how it's bad to be racist, but also the sound of this record kind of in and of itself really shines a light on how absurd the idea behind isolationism is because even though it's like, even though this record has really increased its, its global music influences with much more like dub reggae Afrobeat stuff going on. It also features like an all male Welsh choir and like marching band brass and these Celtic woodwinds. And it's the, it's like the most, British record you're going to hear all year. So kind of in its own little subversive way, it's 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 illustrating that multiculturalism is not the enemy of the Anglo-Saxon. You know, the melting pot doesn't actually pose any threat to the identity of, of Britishness. You know what I mean? For real. I mean, it takes a real gorilla's perspective to multiculturalism, this album. Absolutely. Um, and my second gorillative is fourth dimensional. I think this is actually kind of similar to maybe one of your relatives on the first uh, record, or at least to a, a an observation you made about the first record. But the way that these songs really stumble between past and present, all, like almost drunkenly so. Oh yeah, I mean, there. I, I talked about it on the last one. Yeah, you're right. I said it was an album that seemed unstuck in time. Definitely. And this, this album has lyrics explicitly about traveling back in time. Yeah, and it makes me imagine that like the trauma of the referendum was so brutal that it knocked the spirit of Tate and Albarn through some kind of like time tunnel of Britishness, you know? And Love he's it. Just like, yeah, absolutely. He opens one door and it's 1917. He opens another one and it's right after the bombing of Dresden and he opens it. You know, it's just like... That's always how I've seen this band. For Damon sure. Damon Albarn stumbling through these big British moments in history. And then my uh, my third and final is Rich. I think these songs are just dripping with with ideas and textures and moods and these lyrics. They reward, you know, line-by-line line analysis. And even though the experience is over pretty quickly, it's it's a little bit like eating, like, a really dense chocolate truffle in one bite or something because there's just, like, so many notes that it's hitting and you have to kind of just parse through it again to see what you've missed, you know? Yeah, and, and unlike eating, like, um, a very rich piece of chocolate cake that might put you off cake for a few days this has a lot of replay value it's 
like the I, potato chip of chocolate cake. <laughs> when I finish, yeah, when I finish it, I want to start it right over again. Me too. Me too. I, I, I've not taken it off rotation like hardly at all. I just, I can't get enough. Well, then I imagine we must both be really ready to talk about these tracks. So do you want to start? Yeah, let's start briefly with the introduction. This is a quote from uh, the Canterbury Tales. Uh, I believe it is, uh, and especially from every shire's end of England, the holy blissful martyrs for to seek that them had helped when they were weak. Which to me is David Albarn, like kind of in the meme sense of the phrase saying to England, y'all motherfuckers need Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I'm a big fan of the Canterbury Tales. I was actually like a high school teacher for like a year and a half, two years. And <laughs> yes, you were. The Canterbury Tales is one of the uh, works I taught. And it's about a pilgrimage, which this this record ostensibly is yep, as well. Yep. So that makes a mm-hmm. lot of sense. It's a, and it's you know a classic piece of British literature. If you wanna if you wanna start your English ass record with an English ass soundbite from an English ass book, yeah, the Canterbury Tales is. The one to go for. Yeah, it's not. It's not pulling any punches. It's no. like, and in, and in fact, it it. I think the record starts off in a fairly challenging and accessible place with the with the track we've already talked about a little bit, the title song Maryland. Yeah, but since we talked about it originally. Um, it has grown in leaps and bound in my books. I mean, it was very hard for me to pick a top three, so I kind of had a three-way tie for that third spot, and Maryland is in that three-way tie. I really love this song. Oh, cool. I wouldn't say that this one has like lost its luster for me, but it, I, in my rankings, it's definitely been overtaken by a lot of these other kind of standout tracks and probably lingers in the bottom half of them for me, but uh, there's some really great stuff on here. I mean, obviously, we talked about it a lot, but... I do want to, oh, okay, so so we mentioned that we're interviewing Simon Tong <laughs> at the end of this episode, right? Yeah. So something that you and I did when we were getting ready to interview Simon Tong was like, well, let's go listen to the record and like really pick out what Simon's doing. Well, what we didn't really know is that by tasking ourselves with that, we were, we were challenging ourselves to a sort of musical puzzle box because Simon is doing something very specific on this. Okay. Simon is is working in the margins of this record, filling it out in the places where you're least expecting him. It's a very textural performance throughout. He was, uh, and like listening to the stuff he was doing on the first record, that was honestly pretty straightforward most of the time. Yeah, you know, usually, thinking about usually. history song and the arpeggios on. 80s life usually yeah he's out even in the like a northern whale he's got that he's got that very upfront rhythm thing but here no here he's a ghost here he's 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 the riddler leaving clues around gotham trying to lure <laughs> exactly. you into his performances and i love it i love what he's doing here like i i i'm a, I'm a huge fan of the fact that like one part of this four-piece band has like tasked himself with like you know trying trying to like almost make you not notice him as much as he can as he just like colors in everything else that the band is doing it's so cool and i thought it would be really fun uh for me to to do a segment called where's tong 
where I'm gonna I'm gonna try to explain what Simon does on the song. So, sure, yeah, uh, let's play Let's Spot Simon. He's in the right channel here. He's playing very wispy arpeggios, and he's sounding like kind of mournful, yet somehow also circusy on this track. In my opinion, the whole thing sounds so circusy. I love the sad kind of fairground vibe to this one. I think these arrangements show up like almost exactly verbatim on a later track. But like he, they, there they take on a loungier vibe. Here it feels like we're at a sad fairground. Definitely, especially when that when the big jam picks up and gets like the intensity kind of, you know, boils over. I can't believe we didn't talk about mobilized hooters. Oh the first yeah, time I, I mean that whole little spoken word <laughs> aside. What do you what do you what do you call them? mobilized mobilized hooters? Mobilized hooters. They are half price. He keeps giggling. I wonder if he really was trying to say mobilized scooters and he just like went with it because he thought it was funny. I don't something. know. Definitely a highlight in the song. Yeah. But all the moments that we talked about on that first uh, time we chatted about this one, still love them. Damon going out to the beach, the clowns rolling up. Everything here is so good. And it's just, there's such a, a like a tired, resigned melancholy to this one that is such an interesting place to start the record you know it starts with just like a sigh of a breakup song just Damon asking like hey if you're leaving can you leave me my silver jubilee mug you know this thing that reminds me of a time when England still looked like something that I loved and yet this feels like the album where Damon has maybe finally learned how to be melancholic without also being sleepy because there's a there's a fieriness here too you know, there's an urgency here. You also feel the, the the theatrics of it in a way that's so exciting to me. Definitely. He's like playing sleepy almost. I really like how this song has the same relationship with this album's closing track that Humility had with Sukai on the Now Now, where those two shared this uh, this common theme of, of calling somebody you haven't seen in a while while you're in town. And then uh, these two are both like, processing the the idea of like if you're really leaving me what does that mean you Mm -hmm. know yeah and they're both these like weird kind of just like confused sighs asking like what do we do next but we'll talk about that song when we get to it do you want to keep moving now and talk about gun to the head My number two on the record? Absolutely. Nice. This one is, again, tied for number three. This is a real joy of a track. One of the best hooks I think Damon's ever written on this song. I'm a big the, fan of that. The Animal Lovers chorus. chorus. Oh, so good. I, I broke out into a big, goofy ass grin the first time I heard it. Love it. We don't care because we're all animal lovers that little the pause is so cool the pause. Insert, the pause is so good it feels like something from like a disney movie or something and that recorder is the most damony instrumental performance since like rock the house it's so it, is the record the recorder's tony visconti isn't it no damon plays it on this song and one other okay tony plays it when it sounds good got it <laughs> okay that makes sense yeah it sounds really good later on the album but here it's doing something really fun i think and, and adding to, to the kind of like crazy parade vibe of this of this the, song. The parade vibe is so good. I really want to talk to you more about that Animal Lovers chorus though, because I want to know your interpretation. I've gotten my own uh, over a, the I course of whole take listening to the song. song. Me too. I think this is a song about uh, treating 
people like animals and vice versa. We're in some common territory. Like when I hear this song, I think of Damon like sitting in a pub, right? And he's like, he's looking at like a TV while he's like nursing his beer. And it's showing these news reports that are like thousands dying of starvation, refugees not being let into other countries, like all this xenophobic stuff. And then he would, then maybe he like looks over to another corner of the bar and there's like a very posh British couple like taking very very good care of their tiny posh British dog <laughs> right. like feeding it like caviar or something <laughs> while these other people are like dying in the streets and he's and he just shoots them a nasty look I, I love that. Okay, so this is unfortunately going to require the first civics lesson of the evening. I promise that there aren't too many of them. All right. All right. In the UK, there's this peculiar civil liberties battle called the freedom to roam or every man's right. Basically, the people who advocate for this, they want all of the natural undeveloped land of the United Kingdom to be open to the public for hiking and backpacking and just kind of like wandering through, whether it's government or, or privately owned. And like aside from, you know, areas that are like fenced off to keep livestock from escaping or whatever. Uh, and it's, you know, the people who, who advocate for this, it's proponents. They really talk about this right like it's some essential part of the English identity. Like it's, it's maybe slightly parallel to the way that like gun rights advocates talk about the second amendment although you know this is like more folksy and less scary than yeah. that uh but the opening lyrics they describe this warning sign posted to wanderers that the land has been booby trapped and if you don't turn around you're going to be captured and, and killed and maimed and then we go to banbury where where uh notaries have like announced that they'll cite you if you're walking your dog without a proper harness and and then the chorus i think brings me to my take on this song's purpose which is that we'll, we'll put up with a little bit of threatening and intimidation and overreach of authority to get access to the things that we love whether it's our pets or our long-haul wilderness hikes or what have you and then the second verse i think brings that message into even clearer focus so first of all uh, Damon talks about the horizon, and he talks about it as the head of the unicorn. So the surface level read here is that he's pointing to Scotland, which in the British coat of, of arms is represented as a unicorn. But the unicorn shows up a few times on this record, actually, and I've kind of come to understand it to mean, like, this unattainable fantasy of an England that is somehow both, like, locked off from the rest of the world, yet has, like, a healthy, thriving culture afterwards, which is this idea that Brexiters are chasing, and they can chase it as long as they want, but they'll never actually get to it. It's like the horizon, which always stays off in the distance, or like a unicorn, which is this great idea, but it doesn't actually exist. Brexiters are chasing a unicorn. Exactly. And then we come to the center of the town where a nightingale, who I see as a stand-in for kind of non-white British immigrants, is being like publicly tortured and executed on the wheel. And I w okay, well, let's talk about nightingales here because they're, okay, so they're a migratory species. They're Feathers are brown. Uh, in the winter, they live in, like, sub-Saharan Africa. Okay, you said this wasn't going to be a lot of homework, but now we're into ornithology. My point is, I think the parallels here are clear. They're, like, outsiders that come to Britain, and they're part of Britain, right? But And they look different. They're a little darker than us or whatever. Uh -huh. But we got it. But, you know, they have as much of a right to sort of roam and live and, and love the things they love. But then even though this nightingale is being, like, broken at the wheel, Trevor, it says, you know, I still want to live here. Like, there's things here and people that I love here and the weather's nice and you've got like these great inexpensive modern conveniences. I love that lyric about soft narcotics being sold in Boots. Boots is like the CVS of, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
of uh, of England. So maybe sometimes you're going to see a sign, Trevor, that threatens if you don't turn around, you'll be shot. But you love to go hiking anyway. And maybe sometimes you're going to get a ticket because you let your dog run around in the park off its leash, but you still love to take your dog to the park. And maybe sometimes you're going to be called like packy scum and told that you need to leave or, or, or else. But you still love England and you still feel like you're part of England, which brings us to that second part of the chorus when everything else that keeps us together conspiring to tear us apart. When somebody wants to live in your country with you, ideally you should treat it the same way as when somebody owns the same kind of dog as you. Like, oh, you want to be British? Oh my God, I also want to be British. That's so cool. But instead... It's like this. It's the basis of all the anger. It's the. It's you want to be British. Well, no, fuck you. I want to be British. You, you know? can't. You can't have a bulldog. I. I'm. I have a bulldog. It's my exactly. Thing. Exactly. So I feel like this song is quite an accomplishment and a and a powerful piece of advocacy in favor of a multicultural UK. And it's also just like really fun and has this great chorus that's impossible not to sing along to. What a great one. What a great one. And what a what a great take. Are you going to do that for every song? Because I, I do have work in eight hours. <laughs> no, I would say that I went off the deep end two more times. Okay. <laughs> I, I'm really looking forward to learning about uh, uh, shipping trade routes, by the way. <laughs> That's happening. I'm warning you right now. That's happening. Well, we can move on to the next song, I think, before without discussing the incredible uh, final moments of this song. That oh, strange yeah. crescendo. Oh, my gosh. So day in the life. So, so... Yeah. Yeah. Good. Also, I, I can't. I uh, we we didn't mention, but they released um, technically a video for every song on the album. I think it's just Damon in that uh, ventriloquist dummy head, uh, miming along. Yeah, with, with the performances. kind of you know different lighting or background. Yeah, backdrops. The the one for Last Man to Leave is pretty interesting. The way he mimes along to that big explosion of strings at the end, I can't get that out of my head. Like I always picture that when I hear it. It's like he's a rabbit scurrying or something. Yeah, very those those are those are worth checking out. Once or twice, I think. Those are pretty good. They did a decent job with those. For sure. Damon does a tour de force performance as the dummy. Assuming it's him. Well, I, you know, I just want to believe. Yeah. All right. So next we have uh, 1917. my least favorite song on this album actually but there's a lot here that i really like not um, my least favorite uh towards the bottom of the pack for me but it is uh, one of the most i feel like sonically pleasing to just kind of put on and vibe to this is probably simon's first really big moment on the record because he's responsible for that really interesting jittering intro that sounds like insects playing violins or something and that it's, part, uh, it's that a great part's pretty cool but i i the track really starts as far as i'm concerned when tony comes in because oh yeah this song is about uh damon auburn riding on a train through paris kind of taking at least i assumed he was taking like a tour through like famous battlefields from like first two world wars or something yeah he, talks he a lot sees about like war. a world war one memorial cemetery yeah, some, out the but window. it's about this train ride you know damon auburn loves his train rides he sure does. and tony allen's percussion just makes you feel like you're there on that train it's so propulsive and steady it just really moves you along it carries and, and the, the track. delay the guitar delay and the organ delay also really chug like a like a railroad car as yep, well those I, think too. I think it's very very cool in his texture. Uh, the lyrics are, like most on this record, pretty great. I think the highlight for me is definitely um, I'm just passing through on this battlefield where we played our games and went insane and waltzed around the world like we were off our heads. I yeah, feel that, like it, that part's great. The, the line about waltzing around the world like we're off our heads almost feels like it could be as much about British imperialism as it could be about like 
world wars. Yeah, I almost I almost feel like that sentence kind of like weaves together all of these different points in British history into a long kind of run-on sentence. Brexit and the world wars and the empirical conquest of Great Britain. What do you what do you make of that last lyric about leaving a little piece of England in a field in France? I want to ask you about this too. The I know this is a little crude, but the first thing that comes to my mind is that Damon took a little poop in a field. I'm not going to lie. I did imagine Damon peeing in a field the first time I read that lyric. Okay. Uh, I'm glad we're on the same page there. But here's where I eventually actually came down. I kind of imagined that the wandering spirit of Damon Albarn, like, briefly embodied a British soldier, like, during the Anglo-French War and was, like, immediately shot and killed by a French soldier. I also and, had, like, like, that That idea was also kind of flittering around my subconscious, but I'm pretty sure he pooped. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> Leave it a little bit of Britain. Fuck you, France. <laughs> <laughs> I'll miss you. Okay, let's let's go ahead and jump straight away into my number one song on this album, The Great Fire. Really? Cops make fires on the edge of the Gulf Coast, but there's more of them than us now, and they have come to settle scores. Fuck, yes, dude, absolutely. Dylan, this is the only song on the album that I don't like. You're insane. You're an I, insane person. I'm definitely ready for you to argue your case for it. I There's no argument. It's breathtaking. I think this introductory verse is incredible. So much menace. Like, the idea of you're, you're outnumbered by all these Boy Scouts, and they're setting fires in the suburbs, and then they're coming to your house to pick a fight on your lawn with you if you're not flying the Union Jack. And the, the, the arrangement is just, like, deliciously evil sounding and so is that melody and then this is the first of like tony's first big delayed entrance and it's probably my favorite one on the record i love these dub touches the swirling delay and how damon says rapturous waves with kind of like the same cadence you might say like you know expertise in a dub song or something like that sure, like, yeah the lyrics are the lyrics are just like they're very impressionistic. They're all snapshots of like wandering through Blackpool and taking a tram through Blackpool, uh, a, a city I believe in the north of England. And uh, you know, there's like references to, to like the steel and the mining industry and whatnot. But to me, though, it's just it's just the texture, the flourishes, the mood. Like I love that creeping organ on that part during the Uncle Tom's Cabin mini verse and like. When I say that this is an amazing band, this song is the thesis statement I put forward on that. Like, I think Simon too. Like, usually he's very whispery on this track, uh, you know, off on the left channel. But whenever the band goes into like full jam mode, he really like leans all the way into the feedback, and his guitar just sounds like a like a like a fighter jet sort of blaring across your skull or something, and like. Fuck, man, I don't know. Just between that intro and, and the jam that they lock into and just, like, this is my shit, dude. This is my jam on this record. Yeah, I don't know. I can't disagree with anything you're saying. It definitely brings, like, menace and, you know, a sinister sense of atmosphere in spades. But, like, I don't know. It just it doesn't... One of my favorite things about this album is how strong, like, this, it is from a songwriting perspective, I feel like. There, like, there are so many great melodies and hooks here. Like, every song is so, like, it spent so much time being stuck in my head. This one just never really feels like it comes together. It's more of, like, an, like one of two or three oral experiments on the album. And out of those three, 
it's kind of my least favorite. And I, I don't know, it just hasn't really struck a chord with me. I love this melody. Come to saddle scores. Fucking, ugh, it gives me creeps. It's so good. I don't know. It's a, it's a little it. too it's a little too stagey for me. I think, and not in the kind of stagey I like the way some songs later on the album bring. You know, here's here's a place where we might also slightly slip off the page from each other because I often hear people citing Lady Boston as one of their very favorites on this album, and I there's stuff in Lady Boston I really like, but it's definitely doesn't get into my consideration for top tracks. Are we talking about Lady of Boston? Because we are on different pages because it's my number two on the record. Okay, cool. Um, welcome back, Damon Albarn, recorder impresario. I, I think the recorder sounds great on this one. Me too. I love it. I love yeah, it. Yeah, it sounds it sounds so beautiful, but oh my god, we need to talk about the Welsh choir. Oh yeah, of course. Let's 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 actually get there. There is a quote I want to say about the song from okay, uh, sure. uh from a consequence of sound interview with Paul Simonon that really like unlocked it for me. Um, oh cool. So it's it's this one's really good. It's really pretty. Uh it's a it's a beautiful it's the first big ballad on the record. Um so Paul Simonon said, uh, there's a portrait in Penryn Castle, which was built in the Victorian period, and the people who had built it and owned it pretty much made their money from slavery and enslaving the local population and the slate mines in Wales. So this building pretty much came to represent misery to the local people of the town, and even today they have dark memories of it. This haunted building on top of a hill. Within the castle, there was this portrait of this girl among many male aristocrats, and we started to see her as the Meghan Markle of her time. <laughs> that portrait inspires my favorite r- lyric in the song, Trevor, which is talking about Lady Boston in Penryn Castle. Um, she looks from the shadows out through the stained colors of old glass. The sorrows of slate and sugarcane are hers. It's such an affecting image of privilege and its complicitness with evil. And I just think it's so cool that the Welsh choir on this song is the core of Penner and Bethesda. Like, this town where this castle is, Trevor, has like 2,500 people in it. So not only did they find a Welsh men's choir from that town, but they found the one named after this castle. Like, how fucking wild is that Pretty cool. You know, great (laughs) British destiny going on. It's so beautiful, though. That outro is so beautiful. Yeah, it's unlike anything I feel like I've ever heard on a Damon Auburn record. I mean, he's worked with choirs before. Uh, I'm thinking, you know, Demon Days, obviously, and Tender with Blur. But the way he's employed them before has always felt like very on the nose, not subtle at all. You know, this it's just a big move. Like, I'm Damon Auburn. Here's my choir. This, on the other hand, they just kind of come in very softly, and it's almost just like an ambient embellishment on the track, rather than a big centerpiece. It's so seamless. I just, I love it. It's beautiful. And I'm so glad he lets it have this extended outro that serves as, like, the uh, side A closer on the vinyl version of the album. I think that's very cool. The image I get is, like, so powerful and pretty. Like, I just imagine Damon in that castle, like, looking out over this Welsh town, watching all these like ghosts of Welsh soldiers like marching through the town singing this as they like go out to die in World War One or World War Two or something on ships. 
What they're singing is Welsh for I've Got Your Back, which is kind of different from what Damon is singing. He sings I'm, I'm on, on your back. I'm on your back. I'm on your back. But yeah. I like that they're singing I've Got Your Back. It sounds like 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 Damon kind of like being sad that England is moving away from him, but there is still some part of it that is reaching out to him as even as it drifts away. And even like on a on a slightly more surface level, you just never hear men's choirs on records. It's just, no, you never not really. That, you know? Yeah, and it it just sounds heavenly here. It's lovely. And by the way, that is a seventy piece choir. That is a huge choir. Like you say, it's mixed with 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 so much taste and restraint. There's just, you know, reverb. They never really overtake the song. Eventually, the song kind of, like, peels away and lets them take center stage. But it's still very restrained. Yeah. And I, and I, I think the whole outro is great. I think the whole outro just kind of, like, almost gets into this kind of slow country place of, like, you know, very chilled, almost breezy sounding kind of like poppy dub that's like so beautiful, so beautiful. And, and, but very emotional at the same time. Like this is one of the first big tear jorking moments of the album, I think. Absolutely. Um, okay, well, <laughs> put on your fishing cap, Trevor. It's time to talk about drifters and it's time to talk about trawlers. This was my number four on the record until I started doing research, and it's really fought its way up to my number three spot. Um, it's a grower for sure. It kind of feels like one of the more minor ones the first time you go into the album, but man, it's just such a lovely little tune. It feels like a vampire weekend song. I, I, that's in my notes. That's from everything notes. from Simon's Afrobeat guitar part to like the rhythm of it to Tony Visconti on the recorder being backed up by uh, Gary Diver on the tin whistle to give it this kind of little chamber pop vibe i love this song i wish i had like a whole album full of tracks like this yeah i mean simon's right there this time he's he's playing that vampire weekendy feeling major chord rhythm uh but but then also it's almost like damon also wanted to play along with this kind of 2000s era indie pop rock thing because this melody is very win butlery to me dun, 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 sure dun, i could see that yeah dun, 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 dun. you could totally even hear like farther that. than just this song i feel like there's something about this entire record that's very like uh mid-2000s like indie pop rock like i would have loved this record as a teenager when i was like 16 or oh, something that's interesting back when i first loved the uh first album that's interesting i had i hadn't put that together but I it's totally got a lot of those like from. same sensibilities special shout out to tony allen who's doing like his own kind of mathy polyrhythmic take on like a little ringo star shuffle in this song which is like so fun it's so fun he really makes it his own but still brings that kind of like breezy poppiness to it yeah he, um, he does great here like if 1917 made me feel like i was on a train what he's doing here really does make me feel like i'm on one of these fishing boats definitely and that celtic woodwind line is just so catchy it's so vampire weekend that's like right out of rostam's book and i'm mostly convinced that this song trevor is about the fishing sector in wales and I cried an awful lot while I was researching that, so let's have another civics lesson. All right. Okay, so right now it's being determined whether Britain is going to be leaving the EU in March with a new trade agreement with the EU, or if it's going to be what they're calling a no-deal Brexit. Rumors are that the negotiations are not going well. Theresa May's team is, like, not super well managed, and 
if if it is a no deal Brexit, that's a worrying, worrying situation. Why? It, what would a what would a no deal Brexit look like, Dylan? It would look like basically any industry in the UK that is dependent on selling to the EU for most of its revenue would suddenly be fucked as far as like taxes and tariffs and how long it would take to get things into the countries and that sort of thing. And it could, literally, it could cause a, a depression for so much of the working class of, uh, of the UK. Right, because while whereas now the UK kind of has a special relationship with Europe when it comes to importing and exporting and stuff like that, if they had a no deal Brexit, they would be facing the same kind of like uh, tariffs and trades that any other country would be facing. Exactly. And it's just like that's just not built into their margins. And so they'll just start hemorrhaging money. Now, across the board, one of the industries of the UK that could be really devastated by this is the fishing industry. And one place where it's going to be particularly devastating would be welcome back to Wales, where 90% of the seafood harvest in Wales goes directly to the EU. And there are in, there are these insiders in the Welsh uh, like seafood harvest industry who are saying that if there is no deal in March, commercial fishing in Wales is, is will only be able to operate for a maximum of four weeks before every vessel is grounded and the entire industry is out of money. And Jeez. Yeah. In my read, this song is casting this this big metaphor that's built around these two different kinds of fishing vessels, the ones that are in the name of the song. So you've got the drifter, who's our kind of our protagonist here. A drifter stays stationary, and they've got these big nets that kind of just float in the water, and and you know whatever kind of swims through it gets caught there. And uh, it's 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 considered to be like a passive and pretty sustainable way to fish, like good for the environment fishing. Whereas trawlers, that's like a much more aggressive way to do it. You're basically just towing a huge net, pulling it up and dumping, putting it down, pulling it up and dumping. And like you get much higher yields, but also the environmental impact can be much worse. And so the lyrics describe this drifter who's got nothing left to fish because the trawlers have blown through and taken everything. And I, to me anyway, in the metaphor, the drifter is this Welsh citizen in one of these old blue collar ways of life who've been kind of doing things a certain way for, for, for hundreds or thousands of years. And the trawlers are these people who wanted just so badly to wall this country up that they didn't give a fuck whose livelihood they were destroying in the process or who they sent home hungry as a result. And that Celtic woodwind is just like such a part to evoke in this really powerful way that sense of Welshness and the old way of doing things into the song while also showing like how fragile this way of life is, how quickly it can end. And it's like in the pursuit of protecting tradition and Britishness, the Brexiters are just on the edge of destroying it, you know? It, ruining it essentially and that last verse always kills me when the drifter he he brings his boat ashore and he dismantles it and he just like is wondering what the fuck he's gonna do and he's like uh <clears throat> sorry this really kills me every time i think about it okay so when the sea is glass and the land is dark still throw away your fears throw away the nets and throw away the past when it's taken you half the day to get over the waves you carve away and then there's like and then the, the recorder comes back in with that tin whistle, and it's just like, every time, man, it just, 
it gets me so hard and I'm not even fucking Welsh and the song is about the fishing industry and yet somehow somehow it breaks my heart and it's also such a smart choice on Damon's part to zoom way in on this like one tiny little piece of the machine that's about to explode just so you can see like oh my god these little stories are going to be happening all over this country potentially and it's going to break apart into a million pieces it just fills me with so much sorrow and and dread and yet this is also i think one of the kind of most most pleasant and breezy sounding things on the record it's just it's an interesting juxtaposition for sure it's definitely like fought its way handily into my top three i i also kind of thought it was a little bit slight the first time through but boy i don't know well don i'm glad you've had such an emotional uh attachment to this one because i thought it would be fun uh to play everybody's favorite role the devil's advocate and uh bring to you um, an argument for the uh, scenario of a no-deal Brexit that I was able to find <laughs> online. Please, tell me why it would be a great idea if they make no deal with the EU before leaving the EU. I'm going to, and I'm going to do so by uh, quoting um, some excerpts from uh, quite a long uh, editorial by uh, one Jay Longworth, co-chairman and member of the Advisory Board of Economists for Free Trade and the Advisory Council of the International Energy Agency. Okay, cool. I'm literally picturing Severus Snape. Okay. The need for us to be ready to walk away from the table and abandon our supine efforts to secure a deal with the EU a deal at any cost is becoming daily more apparent. Week after week since referendum day, our Sir Humphreys in Whitehall and our leaders in Parliament have objectively capitulated to every demand an arrogant and overbearing EU has put forward, while the Eurocrats and some of their willing proxies like the Irish Taoist Search poke fun and twist the lion's tail. The EU's trying to cuck us. <laughs> we gotta burn the country down so the EU can't cuck us. <laughs> now is the time that we must earnestly and openly prepare for a tariff-free WTO-based future, Ugh. irrespective of what the EU does and in parallel with any negotiations. No. <laughs> the current strategy involves being too scared to talk about it for fear of upsetting the EU. There would be some short-term disruption, but after that, there would be a massive gain. Far better that than perpetual servitude. It is time our leaders got off their knees and time that the establishment put the British people first rather than pursuing its narrow self-interest. It is time to stop this national humiliation of our people. Leave means leave. Wow. Join me, Harry. Join me, Harry. And we'll rule the wizarding world. The crimes of Grindelwald in theaters now. <laughs> so that's what. So that's what Damon Albarn is up against. Yeah, I think what they need to do is hire our boy Donald to come and show them the art of the deal in person. <laughs> I, I I heard some people call him Mister Brexit. Actually, sure. Why the fuck not? Why not pin this this? national embarrassment on him too why not do you want to talk about the truce of twilight you want to talk about this clash song that happens in the middle of my good bad queen record sure Uh, and 
until the research phase, this was my number three. I'm a big fan of this one. This is this is tied with my uh, other two for number three. Uh, Simmons' baseline here, like, really illustrates like what an influence his style had on the Phase One Gorilla song sound because this is like these are the the exact bass patterns that were used in those Phase One, you know dubbier tracks and if somebody told me that the brass in the song had been an outtake of like the bees on phase, in phase two i would 100 percent believe them too this also feels like the most gorillas moment on the record to me as well totally this is definitely almost a gorillas song and like you said it's just straight up a class track damon wrote a class song and it's great these lyrics are great too. Yeah, These this lyrics is are great. This is one of the most fretful songs in the album, I think. You know, he says it right at the beginning. Enjoy it while it lasts, because soon it will be different. I love the image of pulling like a giant old pagan idol of this like wooden head out of a Martian door set and then dismantling it to build a new construction home. That's such a rich image and also like such a Damon Albarn idea. You That's, know, it's very interesting. My favorite lyrics on this uh, song, though, happened during that gorgeous bridge though uh when just when damon goes bring me my shell box and my submachine gun because you can't get over anything quite like this where the, when the water is darker than the mirror of the sky and demi rousa's playing forever on the water slide very cool very good that whole shell box and submachine gun thing is so like attention grabbing it's very kind of morrissey almost I also want to call out that great lyric during the, the call and response chorus, the one that goes, uh, Go fill your pockets now with tomorrow's landfill. That's great. Yeah, I mean, any, anytime Damon sings about a landfill, I'm going to be on board. For sure, definitely. Yeah. I, I don't know why, but for some reason, this this one really paints like a, like a different picture of like the British landscape to me, you know, where it's not all these rolling hills and shires, but it's like wet and muddy and there's black water and there's swallows swooping down to eat the bugs and it's just a little grimier and grosser, you know? I feel like this song takes place on like, like narrow cramped British alleyways at night. Like I see like dark streets and like street lights and stuff and maybe Damon being backed up by like a small chorus of tramps. I think it's in Dorset, but I think that every now and then he slips back into like the 1500s when it was all marshland. Ooh, interesting. The only thing I don't really like on it is that uh, I think it's a Farfisa that Damon is playing. The synth. That very high-pitched thing. Yeah. Not into that. That kind of annoys me for some reason. Maybe it sounds too busy. I don't know. It's the only time he employs it, I think, right? M mostly he's just always on like a piano or a Hammond or a Lowry on the Yeah, and, and there's a lot of good piano and organ work all throughout. That's, that's the one move he makes here that I'm just not a super big fan of for some reason. Yeah, I can feel that. But I think we need to talk about an actual like important poem about England now ribbons yeah i think there's a version of my top 3 where this would this is the best song on the record i mean it's not in my top 3 but it's a masterpiece don't this is this is my number 1 it's like it's something else i see this as the theme song of this band by the way it imagines the three countries of the uk england scotland and wales as three icons that represent also the national identity of what it means to be in the united kingdom almost like 
forming a revised coat of arms or, or even like a Russian tableau painting of icons or something, like if we were going to make a post-Brexit flag, you know? Also, apologies to Northern Ireland because everybody always forgets them, but... Uh, it, it literally each stanza goes through and depending on the color of the ribbons that the figure is wearing that's which country that they represent so you've got the the first the first stanza is about england in white and red ribbons they portray her as this like young pagan girl who's got flowers in her hair and she's doing this ritualized maypole dance and she represents the art and the culture and the spirituality and that free spirit of, of England. And then next to Scotland in white and blue ribbons, which is the masked horse that's riding into battle and it's shooting arrows at shit and it like represents colonialism and conquest and war and violence and it and it even says like, you know, I'll never let you go. Like the the the, the creepy empire uh the take imperialism on it. aspect, yeah. And then Wales comes third in red and white and green ribbons, and it's kind of the last king, like the one, you know, he used to be this one true monarch who ruled over all of this, and now he's just a figurehead at best, or maybe even more patronizingly like a mascot or something. And taken together, art and wrath and regency, these three are the UK, or the good, the, the bad, bad, and, and the, the queen. queen. Love it. Trevor. It's great. Mic drop. <laughs> Number one on the album. It's yeah. It's the theme song of this band. It's so great, and it is. I. It, it feels like the defining moment in like Damon's career as like what I've come to see him as the like poet laureate of Great Britain. Like all throughout the song, Damon is basically just singing like "I am the United Kingdom," and yeah. that's that's so true. Is, is there a single place that has had like a musician more devoted to it than Damon Auburn is to England? Like, Boy, Lou good Reed loved to write about New York. Like, oh, there's ton, tons of musicians have developed relationships with places, but Damon Albarn in England is a thing that has been going on now for like more than 20 years. And we've been getting his reflections on England at a pretty regular pace now. You know, 1995 or whatever gave us Park Life. 10 years later, he gave us The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. And 10 years later, he gave us Maryland. And, like, we've had tons of, like, big, famous British frontmen over the years, like, breakthrough. We've had, like, Tom York, Noel Gallagher, all the other Britpop guys. But none of them have been as concerned with England and what it means to be England as Damon Auburn is. And that's why it feels like this is the album that, like, it feels like his entire career has been building up to. Like, you can't have a Brexit without your poet laureate releasing a very important work about it, can you? And in a way, this is the song that this it all is, and has this is led the song, up to. Yeah, and there's something about where Damon has gotten to in this point of his career, and there's something about this album that makes me appreciate Gorillas even more because that feels like a necessary step he had to take in order to make this grand statement at this big defining hour. Like, it's not enough that he like had to become like the king of Britpop. He also needed to have this other experience that kept open, that kept his mind open to the rest of the world and fostered his like curiosity and wonder and everything that has like resulted in him becoming such a fierce opponent of Brexit. A, a, a true multiculturalist, you know, a true globalist. It's no surprise that this album is just as likely to remind you of Demon Days as it is likely to remind you of Park Life. I'll go ahead and say this. I think this is a career best lyrical work from Damon Albarn. Sure. I could get on board with that, yeah. 
in this coat of arms that he's painting in this song, the pagan and the war horse and the sad king, there is a fourth figure that arrives uh, wearing a black ribbon, and it's literally thousands of crows plummeting out of the sky. Just dying in midair. That's my favorite part of the song. I'll wear my ribbons black until I die. The way his voice goes up there always breaks me. It's That's so good. Can't you see this flag that he's describing to oh, you? Oh, yeah. This, it's, yeah, it's vivid. This, this pagan hippie girl, this, like, this, you know, snarling, bloodthirsty war horse, this depressed king, and then all of these dead crows just Wonderful. falling all around them. That's Damon Auburn's England. That's the good, the bad, and the queen. Um, <laughs> also... Can we discuss Damon's, like, new weird thing that he likes to do, where in the second to last song of all of his records now, he just, like, throws all of the rules out of the window and does something wacky? I can't wait to talk to you about The Last Man to Leave. The body follows me onto the cobblestones behind the front line. It's a ghost, it's a score for the rabbit hole, because you're all alone tonight, and the police with their heads down, they try to keep the law. I also have things to talk to you you about it for sure the body I, I, follows me onto the cobblestones behind the front line it's a ghost it's a score for the rabbit hole because you're all alone tonight and the police with their heads down so good so good it's very good it's very good and i and i haven't been mentioning this visual album but if you're gonna go look at one uh of these clips definitely check this one out it's it's very striking so it's it's damon doing this kind of spoken word thing over this over the band basically doing this weird kind of apocalyptic weird jaunty march thing it's it's totally singular and like nothing else on the album and really kind of like nothing else damon has done before and it's a lot of fun it's not a great like quote song but it's a really fun listening experience i you know i want to take us back to our where's tong segment because where indeed one of his most delayed entrances but it's very much worth the wait because in around like a minute 45, he just goes full, like, weird, twisting, evil carnival in the right channel of the... Of, it's so good. He finds this really great place to kind of walk into. And and this... Uh, my take on this song, Trevor, is almost comical in its sort of, like, obstinance and its sadness. It, it makes me imagine that, like, Damon has literally decided, fine, we're leaving the EU, but I'm going to stay in it until you literally force me to leave. I'm going to be the last British man in the EU. <laughs> yeah, you're going you're gonna to have to drag, you're going to have to drag me out. Like, they had to drag me off stage at that one really long uh, Africa set I did. And he gets drunk, and he gets angry, and he's mad at his countrymen. He mocks them on this song. We like the bed we've made to lie in much better, thank you. Thank you. That's that's probably my favorite part. It just feels like such a necessary moment to have to kind of shed all of the artifice of being like a level-headed, you know, troubadour music journalist and just say like, "What the actual fuck are we doing?" It's it's a necessary breakdown here at like the eleventh hour. Like you couldn't have it without this kind of thing. I totally agree, and I and I think it it gets us emotionally like exactly where we need to be too for the for the end of the record because the the only other song I would kind of compare this to would be like a like a howling money or something. Yeah, but but here it's Damon doing all the crazy stuff, which exactly. is a real treat for a longtime fan of his, I think. Like the the stuff he's doing with his voices towards the end during the don't leave me now part. I'm pacing up and down the kitchen. That's that's really great. He just loses his chill 100% here. <laughs> it's it's really great. 
And I love all the drinking. I love all the drinking. The sad, angry drinking that happens on this song is great. So do you wanna do you wanna get to the last song then? The poison tree? Yeah, I absolutely do, because this song is gorgeous, and it's, like, romantic, and it's not sorrowful to me. It's just, like, melancholic, and, like, it's achingly sweet, I think. There's a sense of defeat to it. Like, by the by the way, this is what brings us back to, like, the Maryland arrangements. I feel like this is the exact... It sounds so similar to that title track, but here they're doing, like, a lounge thing instead of a fairground. It's much more chilled out, and there's more of a resigned atmosphere than, a, like, the confused one. Like, we're still seeing somebody in that moment where they're being left by someone or something very important to them, but here they're just kind of, like sighing and staring at the wall rather than trying to figure out what to do like it's a real like wow this is really it moment it, it's nice to go out on the same sound that we started on and i think it's also worth mentioning that the album began with a british literary reference to you know uh chaucer's canterbury tales and here it ends with one the poison tree is a reference to uh william blake's poem of the same name from songs of the poison tree. yeah from songs of experience or songs of innocence i can't remember you know one of those two u2 albums that william yeah. blake wrote <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But it's it's such a it's it's it was really striking for me to see Damon uh, reference the poison tree because it's actually not the first time in his career that he's done so. I had no idea. I'm you know a huge fucking blur stan, and yeah, yeah, yeah. as a result, I've heard like everything they've ever done, including all their B sides. Uh, one of the B sides of Girls and Boys from all the way back in the Park Life era was this song called Magpie, which is this like cool like ag like aggressive little Britpop track but instead of writing lyrics for it for the verses damon just decided to sing the words to the poison tree by william blake interesting okay so i thought we it might be worth it to recite those words and just read the poem now it's pretty short yeah go for it i was angry with my friend i told my wrath my wrath did end I was angry with my foe, I told it not, my wrath did grow. And I watered it in fears, night and morning with my tears, and I sunned it with smiles and with soft, deceitful wiles. And it grew both day and night, till it bore an apple bright, and my foe beheld it shine, and he knew that it was mine. And into my garden stole, when the night had veiled the pole, in the morning glad I see my foe outstretched beneath the tree. So kind of a poem about how resentment and anger can grow and fester until it becomes something destructive and even deadly. This is so in tune with what Damon's been saying in some of the interviews about this record of like, why didn't we just all get together and talk about this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you because know? then that would dissipate the problem and nobody gets to keep feeling superior and angry and, you know, like a Brexiter. I want to look at that, that because my favorite things about this song are the bluntness of it and... Uh, a couple of these metaphors too, and I just wanted to really quick look at that those first opening lyrics because you know he he goes back not only sonically to the beginning of the album but but lyrically with that if you're leaving me motif um, mm -hmm. another breakup song. If you got dreams you keep and you're leaving me, I'll see you in the next life. Which is like you know if this is really what's in your heart, what more can I possibly say or do? This is what you've you've made your decision. I'll set you free to find your promised land, like AKA the head of the unicorn, that thing that you want, but you can't actually have. And then he lands that verse with the simplest, and I think the most fully felt lines on the whole record, which he goes, if you're leaving me, it's really sad. 
it's really sad. sad. You know, there's so much, like you said, fretting and anger and clawing and desperation and lecturing and post-mortem and contextualizing on this record. And then he just hits this point where there's nothing left to say, but like, There's God, nothing left sucks. to do with Psy, yeah. This sucks. Oh, man. Bummer. That you're doing this. It's like the moment when your mom's not mad at you. She's just disappointed. But yeah. it feels so much worse that she's just disappointed. That you was know? one of my girlitis, man. Disappointed. It was one of your, yeah, exactly. One of the words I almost went with for my girlitis, and it's a word I want to talk about in reference to this song, is uh, powerless. Because what? how different is this than the ending to the first album of the, you know, Al Barnesance. We got the power. Like, Oh God. Right. And it would have been so easy for Damon to end his big political Brexit record with another rousing call to arms, maybe on a track similar to the close, the closing one from the first good, the bad and the queen. Record. Right. Right. But there's no big, you know, cathartic explosion of, you know, togetherness here. It's just a sigh. And like, you, you just kind of get the image of, Damon like watching the final Brexit proceedings happen on TV and he just has enough and turns the TV off. I also want to look at that lyric that that references the poem and the title of the track itself because I think it's such a good allegorical way to describe like the shock of that referendum vote, the the poison tree that grew up next to me. It's like god, look at all this this rhetoric and this hatred and this old world, you know, black-hearted xenophobia and it's just right here on my block. It's right here in my backyard. Yeah, it's been just, here the whole time. Just growing up right next to me the whole time, and then he and then he lands that with another couple of it's really sad. It's just it's, devastating. It's, it's really sad. It's just devastating. And don't forget, Simon Tong is there to help this one around. He's in your right earbud, and he's gone back to his kind of like gentle, almost island hula vibe. You know, he's got some slide going. It's simple. It's perfectly beautiful. Damon almost sounds like a teen pop idol with the way he's... That that melody he found is so pretty, Trevor. It's so yeah, pretty. It's, and it's so loungy. Like, the song yeah. could just kind of put you to sleep almost. I love it. I love the long fade. Yeah. It's a great closer. Such a different closer than the first time around, but just it ends us on you know just as high a note i think big thumbs up that's all i gotta say <laughs> I, I can't believe how blown away by this album i've been i mean i'm loath to say this because you would almost want them to put out a third record before i said something like this but at the same time if the good the bad and the queen makes a third record it means something terrible has happened in england so i don't i don't necessarily want to wish that I think this is my second favorite Damon Albarn project at this point. I, I really? think Yeah, I mean like I you know, I love Blur and I and you know, there's like four Blur albums that I that are really important to me, but I this finishes the conversation that Park Life started in a way that I think is like so much fuller and more realized than than what Park Life had to say and I Well, I I don't think the conversation is finished. I fully expect to get another album from Damon in 10 years checking in on the British public conscience and seeing what's going on. I hope Tony Allen can hang in there. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> who knows? Maybe who maybe maybe Damon's next big British album will be a Gorillas one. Oh, you never know. He might decide to take his American van back to the UK. Yeah, we'll have to see in the future of Damon Albarn. Phase 6 uh Russell gets deported by Brexiters. And, and, and Murdoch <laughs> runs for prime minister in an attempt to reunite 
the country and bring them back. Sure. Do you want to do our uh, moments? Sure. Let's talk about our three favorite moments, moments on the album. I'll go first with my number three. It's uh, that Animal Lovers chorus from it's Gun to the Head. It's a pretty great moment. It's a pretty great moment, Trevor. And, uh, and uh, my number three is that is that Celtic recorder part that Visconti plays on Drifters and Trawlers. I just think it's so good. It's so lovely. Uh, my second favorite moment is when Damon calls for his shell box and sub, sub, submachine gun on that absolutely stunning bridge halfway through the Truce of Twilight. Similar in tone, my number two is the opening stanza of The Great Fire, just roiling with devils and mischief. I love it. Great. And I couldn't give my... We, can, we have to have the same number one, I, I imagine. I, I don't know. I mean, by, you told me you didn't like this song. My favorite moment is that extended outro featuring the male Welsh choir uh, at the end of Lady Boston. Yeah, of course. It's the best part of the record. Oh, I'm, like... so, I'm, so, I'm so glad you're on board with that, at least. It's it's absolutely the best part of the record. It's there's nothing else like it in in any of the music that I've heard before. And there's nothing <laughs> else like this album in Damon's catalog, really, despite being, you know, by all means the third in a series of very similar records with Park Life and the first Good, the Bad and the Queen. It really is just a whole new thing, it feels like for him. It's so great. And let me tell you, there the the anxiousness, the anxiety that 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 comes through so potently on this record. I was feeling a little bit of that anxiety, Trevor, wondering what the fuck it was going to be like when you and I sat down to talk to Simon Tong. <laughs> because there have been some longer form band interviews where, like, you know, Damon and, and Paul will be just babbling on about their feelings about the Brexit and England. And I think there was one that was almost a half hour long and Simon Tong was there the whole time and he spoke for 15 seconds in the whole thing. <laughs> I, I think I think when we emailed him trying to get an interview, his, his publicist said like, I warn you, he's not a talker. Yeah, he's very quiet. And so I was just like, I don't know what we're going to get from this guy. And I was and I was like, you know, we were pretty anxious writing this one. Just like, I don't know, what if he just says like, yep, Nope. <laughs> well, I'm sure I'm sure our listeners are just as curious as to how our interview with Simon Tong went as we were going into it. So let's take a listen to us talking to Simon Tong of The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. Hi there, Simon. Uh, this is Dylan. And this is Trevor from How You Monkeys, the number one gorillas podcast in the world. Oh, very pleased to speak to you. It's uh, it's such an honor to have you on the show, Simon. Thank you, thank you. Where where are you based? West Coast, USA. I'm in California, Dillon's in Oregon. Oh, wonderful. This is a big one for us, Simon. You know, we've been fans of yours for some time, and uh, this podcast is kind of gorillas focused Obviously, you've played a role in that band, but obviously with, with the good, the bad, and the queen drawing focus right now, we've kind of transitioned into temporarily becoming a good, bad, queen podcast. Cool. That's good. Something we like to ask people on the show is uh, what they what their preconceptions might have been about Damon Auburn uh, before they worked with him. I believe the first time you worked with him was as the touring guitarist for Blur during the Think Tank era. Uh, how well did you know him prior to this? Like, did you have any preconceived notions about what he would be like to work with? And how did those like match up to the reality of what you ended up getting? Um, I didn't really. I'd never met him before I started doing the Blur uh, tours. Um... So yeah, I don't know what my preconceptions were really, because I was obviously I was in the Piper de Verve before that, and um, I don't know if you remember, but there was like a kind of 
Oasis and Blur had a kind of rivalry. Of course. Oh, of, of course. And I, I, I've i actually heard some uh, reports that uh, Richard Ashcroft, your former band member of The Verve, has always kind of thought Damon Albarn's a bit of like a poser. Like, he's famously stated, like, uh, saying on stage that, I believe once he asked the crowd, what famous 90s frontman once told me, uh, last week I was baggy, but now I'm a mod. And I think a lot of people interpret that that as a dig at Damon Auburn. Quite possibly. He's a character that Richard Ashcroft. Obviously, though, it doesn't sound like he was slagging him off during the sessions for like uh, urban hymns or anything like that. No, no, but we were kind of, the verb was kind of on the side of Oasis, I suppose. Yes, I, I know. Like uh, Oasis and Richard would even like write songs about each other, kind of. I'm not quite sure about that. <laughs> But you didn't you didn't buy into all the hype. You came into me- meeting and working with Damon with an open mind. It sounds like oh, completely. Yeah, I mean, I kind of it was such a. I was quite honored to get a call. It was like a friend of a friend who suggested me to play the guitar for them. So it was kind of I was quite honored to be kind of asked to even to go and try out. And it, yeah, it was it, right from the off. It was it was a very warm kind of welcoming person. Well, clearly, you must have done a, a fine job because you continued to collaborate with him. You know, obviously, as a Gorillaz podcast, we're really interested in the playing that you did on, on the Demon Days album. I really think your guitar is a pretty crucial part of the sound of that record. In fact, when I think about some of the big guitar moments on that record, like the intro to Oh, Green World or the, the outro of All Alone or that slide guitar on Don't Get Lost in Heaven, like those parts have such a, a, a specific tone and mood and they're very minimalist and very lonely and weepy and I'm so curious how those parts were written. Did those grow out of improvisations or were they composed ahead of time? No, they were improvised. Yeah, they were completely improvised to um I mean they had the tracks already that Damon had done with Danger Mouse. They they had the kind of basic structure of the tracks pretty much recorded and I just kinda of came on and just went in the studio and just overdubbed. Were you doing your overdubs alone? Or were were there other session musicians while you were also working on the record? No, no, it was just Damon and um, Brian and the engineer. They just let me kind of do my thing. And maybe give me a few pointers here and there, but it, yeah, it was very much just kind of got me into do what I do, I suppose, which is that kind of it's slightly melancholic, like you say, kind of bit of slide and very kind of... <laughs> I like your self-awareness of your style, man. <laughs> <That's>, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Something something we noticed when looking at those uh, personnel credits from Demon Days is that All Alone is the only song on there where you have an additional composer credit. We were wondering if there was anything you did differently on that song than on the rest of the record. Um, no, well, that song had quite a, a long kind of gestation period because it started, we, I don't know if you know, that when before the Good, the Bad, and the Queen became the Good, the Bad, and the Queen, we, we went to Nigeria for a couple of weeks to do some recording with Tony Allen and a lot of Nigerian musicians. And uh, All Alone was a track that we were doing there. We tried out in the studio, and so... Wow, I had no idea about that. We had no idea. What year was that? Oh, God, what year was that? It was, would have been the year before Demon Days came out. So, like, 2004. What form was the song in at that point? Because I know I know it's such a sort of collaborator-focused song now. Was it sort of... That's that's super interesting. We've never heard that before. A groove or, or what yeah, was no, it? Yeah, no, it had... No, it was a kind of a, a groove, but it had the all-alone... The all-alone hook that kind of Damon sings, you know, the kind of, and the slide 
melody was over that was kind of running throughout the song. And I kind of thought, oh, that's just been pushed to the side. And then when I went in to do the Gorilla, the Demon Day sessions, here was this song that completely morphed into something else, you know, with um, Martina and uh, Roots Maneuver on it. And it was suddenly, it suddenly become this epic thing that it is on the record. So. Very interesting. But the, the fact that it was kind of birthed out of those sessions with uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Queen and Tony Allen in Africa, that kind of explains your uh, composer credit on it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I think so, maybe. Yeah. Huh. Wild to think that there's that somewhere in the archives there's a Tony Allen version of All Alone. How crazy. You know, I could I could picture it. I can hear it. Me too, it. it would totally work. Uh you also worked on the Plastic Beach album, Simon, which famously was intended to be a yeah. a, a two album sort of cycle, but you kind of built out of all the material Damon was working on at that time, but then the second one ended up getting canceled. And I'm and I'm wondering if you remember working on much material at that time that just sort of never came out from those sessions. No, I think everything I played on ended up on the record. I think maybe I came in a bit later, later on in the process. I'm assuming you would have come in on Plastic Beach at about the point in the process that you came in on Demon Days, right? To sort of polish off with some overdubs and whatnot? Yeah, or maybe even slightly later when it was kind of pretty much all done. I mean, it's quite a long album anyway, isn't it? It is, yeah. I can yeah. imagine that it could have been yeah. a double album epic. It kind of makes me think that maybe maybe that, that material they were eyeing for a second release was kind of still in the formulation stages or something yeah. like that. One thing I'm, I'm definitely curious about, you've actually worked on a number of projects with Damon over the years. Like you did uh, the cast recording for that Wonder.Land musical, and, and you did some work on a solo record, Everyday Robots, as well. Um, yeah. I'm wondering if the distinction between different Damon Albarn projects makes much of a difference at all to you as a collaborator, or is is it more just like a Damon Albarn record is a Damon Albarn record? Uh, I suppose, yeah, Damon Albarn is a Damon Albarn record, I think, and if he asked me to come and play on it, it's because he wants the, just my sound, you know, I'm not, I kind of, I just, I just do my thing, and he thinks, oh, like, needs a bit of... Needs a little Simon. Yeah, but I find it quite weird that people kind of like certain projects and don't like other projects of his because it's kind of, to me, they're all him. <laughs> you know what I mean? Some people don't like Blur but then love Gorillas. It's like, well, they're kind of pretty similar to me. I mean, it's him singing and it's his songs. It's kind of weird. The perception that people have of the different projects. I have a theory about that. We don't have time to get into it, but I think it's analogous to like being a fan of a sports team. I think you just get invested. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Talking about all of his different projects, though, let's shift gears into talking about uh, The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. Back in 2006, Damon would often claim that the band didn't really have a name, that the name was just the title of the album. Is that still officially the story, or like, can we all admit that the band is called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen? Uh, um... I don't know, really. We don't really know. <laughs> it's just that people need it. Still, still, still a mystery. I think we'd rather it wasn't. It didn't have a name, but so it's a mouthful when people say. Oh, what? It is a little cumbersome. It is, yeah. Dylan and I both noticed uh, when the Maryland album cover came out that the good, the bad, and the queen, the name wasn't on it. So technically, you guys could still go with the story of not having a name. Yeah, I mean, it's on the back cover, but I think it's just so many words, you couldn't really fit all the words on the... But yeah, it'd be, it'd be nice to call this the, the band Maryland now, actually. We kind of talked about maybe you should just be called Maryland. Oh, that's kind of cool. If you want to yeah. be a name for each. If you want to be a contrarian, you could call the band Maryland. That's kind of a cool fan, a fan yeah. flex. I like I it. I like it. Yeah. 
Um, you know, Damon Damon was talking in a bunch of interviews about how he brought, you know, more than 50 songs to Tony Visconti and he let Tony pick the ones he thought belonged on the album. And I'm just so curious about that material that, that, that didn't end up on the record. Was that mostly like demos that Damon made on his own or did you guys all work on that stuff together as a band? Um, a mixture of both, really. Um, yeah, some of them are just his demos that he did on his own and some uh, others that we kind of worked through prior to Tony Visconti coming on board that we kind of did full versions of songs and yeah there's some great stuff that didn't that Tony didn't uh, pick out well uh, I was going to ask you about that how, how, how did you how did you feel about Tony's choices are there is there one in particular like oh, I wish that one had been on the record that was one of my favorites yeah there was a couple there was like a kind of ballad that was called Cowfoot or had the working title of Cowfoot that's kind of not on the record. I don't know if that's going to um, make them see the light of day at some point. Yeah, there were a few things, but we we just got to a point where we had so many ideas and songs floating around that we just needed someone to come in and be quite kind of disciplined and say, right, we're going to do this one, this one, this one, this one. But that was kind of Tony Visconti's main, not his main job, but that was the kind of one... The main uh, focus of getting him in, really, to just kind of help us hold our hands and kind of like kind of be a bit strict about. It. How would you say his approach to working with the band differed from your previous producer, Danger Mouse? It was weird with Danger Mouse. We we weren't we'd never really played together as a band, um, so I suppose he had more to do in terms of pulling us together and putting a song together. Even though a lot of it was recorded live, it would be weren't necessarily used to playing with each other like Paul. I hadn't played with Tony before. Um, you know, I haven't played with Paul. Uh, but this time round, I think we were much more of a live because we used to play with each other. Tony Visconti could just let us play in the studio and just record it and then kind of edit it down afterwards. You know, he didn't have to kind of uh, mold the album as much. It was much more freer and he just kind of let us do what we did. I wonder if, because I actually think, I really love the first record, by the way, but I do think you can feel the band starting to feel, kind of feel each other out in that record, too. Yeah. I, you know, last year we actually did, like, a track-by-track track analysis of the first uh, record, and something that we were both struck by was how often it seemed like a decision was made to just dump Tony's drums and just go with, like, electronic drum programming, which is something that, that isn't, doesn't really happen at all on this record. Do you know whose decision that was? and why that decision was made on that first record? Um, I don't know. It was probably Brian's decision. I think he had um, a kind of a vision of what he wanted. But I suppose we all kind of went with it in the end. And Yeah, I mean, Tony does complain that he's not on that first album very much. <laughs> does he? Interesting. We also um, complained about it a little bit. I mean, he's, yeah. he's a world-class talent, and sometimes you're like, come on, man, where, where's Tony? Yeah. Yeah. So, Simon, something we do when we review records on the show is we try to describe the album using only three words or adjectives. Uh, you don't need to rack your brain too hard, but when you think about Maryland, what are three words or adjectives that come to mind? Oh, um, well, there's an awful lot of melancholy in there. That's a good, that's a good one. Melancholy's great. And I suppose, yeah, it's kind of, it's very ghostly as well. There's a lot of ghosts, kind of English ghosts kind of being sung about and described you're nailing it so far um, two for three so I think far so too, yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's a slight theme running here though i think um the other one i don't know there's a slight the pagan element to it as well Ooh, you, know, great. you know yeah damon has always been occupied with like pagan magic and i actually had it reminded me a lot of an earlier project of his uh dr d yeah yeah no it has 
similar yeah. similar themes, I think, running through it. English mysticism angle. Yeah, well, he's just thinking about England and what what makes up the English kind of mentality and you know whatever the kind of strange magic and the strange kind of undercurrent that our country seems to have for good or for bad. I don't know, but you know, it's kind of yeah, it's something that he's it's always it's something that's always interested him and continues to kind of influence his writing. I don't know how we're doing on time, Simon, but something I really hope to talk to you about before we broke off was was your your approach to the guitar on Maryland because boy, it's so it to me anyway, it's so different than the first record. It feels much more textural than you're playing on the first record. It, it feels uh, you know, kind of kind of like it, it often creeps in on the left or the right channel and and kind of before you even realize it's there, it's kind of adding this extra layer. Did you did you make a conscious choice to approach this record differently than the previous one or how did that all kind of how did you find the sound of this record? Yeah, I suppose it's just been I've just kind of been playing with the kind of sounds that I've been just working on on the past 10 years, just developing my own sound in different projects. And it's just kind of, maybe my sound's just developed. And I said, Tony Visconti just kind of let us pretty much play what we wanted to play. You know, he'd let me overdub, do maybe two or three guitar overdubs, and he'd just kind of place them and pan them on left and right. You know, he'd kind of, he was very, he's very good at kind of balancing a sound. You know, he's very good at kind of just, Right, this goes on the right, this goes on the left, which I suppose when you listen to a lot of those old Bowie albums and stuff he's done, they're very they're beautifully balanced, there's so much space in them and yeah, and he just he just kind of he encouraged me particularly to just try different things and to kind of just use my different sounds and effects and just go for it really and just Lots of lots of delay, lots of chorus, all kinds of interesting textures. Oh yes. Lots lots of delay and chorus, yes. <laughs> Well, I was trying to make my guitar sound a bit like a, a kind of an organ as well. It, oh, there are moments on this record where I literally cannot tell if I'm listening to like a Lowry or I'm listening to your guitar. No, yeah, you're a real chameleon yeah, on well, this one. It's incredible. That's exactly what we were aiming for. <laughs> yeah, that's well what done. we're trying to do. <laughs> but it's just trying to capture that kind of British seaside kind of end of the pier, you know, slightly drunken organ player playing to a lot of old people, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's to make it as creepy as, and as kind of English seaside as possible. Creepy is another very good adjective. <laughs> in my and seaside. It all, it all shines through. I think you're really nailing it. <laughs> it really does. Record. It really does. Yeah. You know, I, I also wanted to touch on the social element of the record before we let you go, Simon. You know, in in band interviews, we've kind of noticed you tend to be maybe a little bit less outspoken than, say, Damon or Paul. Uh, and and there's a lot of talk of of what it means to be English and and you know what Brexit, the effect, of, the impact of Brexit and the xenophobia that seems to be moving through the country. But we'd really like to hear your perspective on a couple of these things. Can you can you tell us about the sort of thoughts and the feelings that you were processing when you first found out that Britain had voted to leave? Yeah, I think a lot of people, a lot of people I knew were just really angry and frustrated and shocked that a large part of the country wanted to leave Europe. I mean, it just seems utterly ridiculous, utterly ridiculous from our point of view. But I mean, I can totally understand other people's points of view as well. You know, it's not so completely black and white. You know, it's just such a stupid, ridiculous situation. Our country is completely consumed by it at the moment. It's ruining everything, you know. It's kind of, it needs to be resolved. 
somehow. <laughs> I'm not sure how you can do that, but I mean, isn't this? I read the other day there's talk of there's a movement in California, California to kind of try and free itself from the. The Cal exit seems like it might be a bit of a bit of a joke. Yeah, that's that's not really taken very seriously. But hey, you know, nobody took Brexit seriously until it happened either, did you it? You never know. You never know. In spite of there being maybe a bit of finger wagging and and lecturing, you know, to the British people on the record, you also feel the affection that comes through. And I'd I'd love to hear something that you love about England or being English. I just love the mix. I mean, that's my kindness. I love the fact that English people are a mix of you know the mix of Irish, Celtic, French, Belgian, Dutch, and West Indian and West African, even Indian and. Pakistani, you know, a mix of mix of lots of different cultures, and I can, and we always have been, you know, since since the Romans and before. It's like you know, you can't. We we are a mix of people, and I think that we cannot kind of accept that and understand that's part of our psychology. Just frustrates me, that, but that's what I love about being English. I feel like that mix you're talking about is actually pretty well represented in the sound of this record, especially in comparison to the first one. I feel like there's more kind of Caribbean and dub and reggae influences on this one. You've got a lot more of the of the West African kind of polyrhythms with Tony playing on more of the tracks. Was, yeah. there, was that also an idea of like, let's let's globalize the sound more and kind of melt the pot in, in the sonics of the record? It, no, it wasn't um, a direct decision. No, that's, that's just us as a band, that's what we represent as a band. You know, Paul brings that kind of W Jamaican bass style, and Tony does his thing, and me and Damon maybe, you know, have, have that slightly English folk element to it. But I think that's just the way we sound. It wasn't a deliberate decision. Uh, just the way we sound when we go in a room and play together. It matches. <laughs> it matches nicely the message. Speaking of you guys playing in a room together, let's talk about uh, the future of the Good, the Bad, and the Queen as a live band. Are you guys going to be playing any live dates stateside coming up? I hope so. We're not really sure what what next year holds. We've got a small tour in England lined up and some festivals next year. But yeah, it'd be great to come to America. When we toured the last album in, in the states, it was um, yeah, it seemed to go down really well. We both love you as a live band. It would be really thrilled to see you so yeah let's hope it happens if you touch the west coast simon will be there absolutely and we would just like to thank you again for coming on the show and talking to us what so thank you for being so generous with your time and it was such a such a joy to talk to you simon no thank you all right uh, good luck on your upcoming gigs man have a good day cheers thank you Come on, that was just, he, what a lovely, wonderful dude. He was right? so I, I, he was so down to earth and like charming and funny in his own little kind of quiet way. It was great. I wasn't, I don't know what I was expecting going into it, but it, it wasn't really that for some reason. When you, when you give the ghost, the ghostly figure of the good, the bad, and the queen like room to speak, he's so funny and smart and insightful. Simon, thanks for coming on the show. Feel free to. Come back and share some more words anytime you want. Anytime. Also, crazy about All Alone. That's a, that's oh, a wild. Oh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, what a it wild... started life as a good, the bad, and the queen song. Who the fuck knew? Insane. Insane. I would kill, kill to hear those sessions, too. Man. Yeah, uh, Tony Allen drumming on All Alone. That would have been wild. Yeah, for sure. And then, and then I, I gotta ask you: Are do we should we become the asshole fans who refer to this band as Maryland from now on? 
I, I still like the good, the bad, and the queen as a as a band name. I always thought that joke that Damon insisted on doing the first time around was kind of dumb. Ribbons kind of really solidifies that they're called the good, the bad, and the queen. Oh yeah, yeah. Damon can't skirt around the issue anymore. That's the name. That's the name of you the You wrote band. it in the song, dude. Anyway, Dylan, tell everybody where they can find us online. www.hallelujahmonkeys.com for all of our links to the Discord and the whatnot. Definitely still get involved with our Patreon. We're so sorry if you're already involved with our Patreon. We got a little bit of a backlog going. This there's th- this is a crazy, a fucking crazy month that's happening right now, and we can't talk about it just yet, but there's like, things are happening <laughs> in the Hallelujah Monkeys world right now. We promise to get right back to resuming and and catching up on the Patreon Keys Club uh, just as soon as we possibly can. It's all and, coming. Uh, it's all coming. It's all, it's all coming. It's all coming. Don't you guys worry your cute little heads about it. It's all coming. Yeah, I guess that's it. Also, make sure to follow uh, my good friend and co-host Trevor Ickrath on Twitter at Trevor Ickrath with all of the vowels taken out. T-R-V-R-K-R-T-H. And follow my good friend and co-host Dylan Flynn on Twitter at Dylan Flynn, Dylan spelled D-I-L-L-O-N, not D-Y-L-A-N, as I've seen it frequently misspelled. I, it's the bane of my fucking existence. I would I would get it changed. No, at this point, it just, it, there's enough it's, to It's who you to are. It's who you the, are. It's who I am. What are you going to do? It's who you are. I've been Trevor Ickrath. I've been Dylan Flynn. Until next time. Don't get lost in Brexit. <laughs> Demo! 50 demos of songs that we'll never hear. 